This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the executive director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program. And I'm here on Zoom with my friend and colleague, Mike Yuseem. Mike, how are you? Jeff, I'm doing great. How about you? Yeah. I'm, I'm also doing great, but I knew you'd be doing great. You, uh, you've been consistently doing great for six plus years here. Yeah, I'm great. Though. You're great. Though these days we might have an asterisk next to both of our names. We'll see. <laughs> well, I'll tell, Mike, what what's the secret to staying great? Uh, well, it's uh, leadership one hundred and one. If we're not optimistic, nobody else will be. So there it uh, is. Fantastic. Well, we will carry that optimism uh, into what is going to be a fantastic show and fantastic discussion. Um, I should note that our third host, the one and only Doctor G <laughs> and Greenhall. Uh, is not with us today. And that is because right now, Mike, as we speak, she is working with a group of senior executives in the advanced management program. She'll be spending the day with them. Uh, I I think you know those guys, don't you? I'm familiar with those guys, Jeff. And just to throw it back at you, can you name the number of the cohort and that we do number AMP, Advanced Management Program, offerings uh, one at a time. And so what's, what is, Jeff, what is the current number? Didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I bet you yeah. got it. Yeah, we're, we are, we're sitting with uh, the 79th cohort of oh. Advanced Management Program executives. So we're with them uh, throughout the summer and into the fall. And then we'll welcome the cohort of Advanced Management Program 80 executives uh, to campus here in October. So there you have it. New episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM channel 132. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. And, you know, we're we're pretty excited about the conversation that we're going to have today, a a brand new book uh, from our guest, Robert Siegel. Uh, the book is called The Brains and Brawn Company. So stay tuned. We're gonna get we're gonna dig into both sides of that, both the brains and the brawn. Mike, we'll have to decide at the end which you represent and and which I am bringing well, well, here. Jeff, it's pretty obvious, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll come back to that. Why don't you write your answer down and I'll write mine down, <laughs> okay. and then we'll at the end we'll yeah. just make well, reveal, okay? So let, let's uh, let's bring Robert in here. How are you today, Robert? Doing great, Jeff. How are you? Uh, doing really well. Doing really well. Thank you for being here. Um, let me say a couple words about you, so our guests can start to our our audience can start to get to know you as a guest, um, and then we will dive right into this conversation. So, um, Robert, you uh, you teach uh, a very popular course called Systems Leadership at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, I teach that course with former General Electric CEO, Jeff Immel. Um, And you are a general partner at XSEED Capital, a venture partner 
at Piva. You sit on the board of several startups. You're an author, uh, appearing in the Harvard Business Review, the California Management Review, um, as well as uh, Fortune, TechCrunch, Forbes, et cetera. You've been an executive at, at several tech companies, including Intel, and you have four patents. You're a co-inventor on four patents. Congratulations there. Um, and worked as the lead researcher for Andy Grove's best-selling book, Only the Paranoid Survive. So with all that, you it, it all culminates here in just published book, The Brains and Brawn Company, How Leading Organizations Lend the Best of Digital and Physical. So we want to welcome you here to Leadership in Action. Uh, and and as we get into this conversation, um, can you, you tell us a little bit about the, the framework? I mean, it, 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 it brings a, some imagery with it, brains and brawn, right? Um, where did that come from and, and uh, why did now feel like the time to, to contribute this kind of a framework uh, to the analysis of, of companies and leadership? So the book is actually a kind of a culmination of two of the courses that I teach at Stanford, uh, the systems leadership course that you mentioned, but also one called the industrialist dilemma. And in both of these courses, we look at how companies are having to change how they develop products, how they organize and how they lead in a world where digital and physical are becoming increasingly connected. And also in my work as a venture capitalist, I was seeing a lot of this blending that had to happen between digital and physical. And it seemed to go against the narrative that we get out of Silicon Valley that digital is going to take over the world. And Mark Andreessen talks about software eating the world. And yet what we were finding that whether we were looking at really successful incumbents that were morphing into this digital world or even upstarts and disruptors who were going into areas like healthcare or financial services or uh, things like that, that the real great companies were trying to blend digital and physical. And we were trying to capture this notion of, you know, we didn't just want to call it digital and physical. It was really more about brains and brawn, that kind of almost minds and body. And as we really started to get down into the details, we looked at 10 different attributes, five digital and five physical, that we thought really uh, great companies were doing most of these 10 and no company does all of them well. And so we started looking at, you know, the five brainy attributes, like the left hemisphere using analytics, the right hemisphere of one's brain, how you looked at creativity, the amygdala for how you handled empathy and, and kind of the emotional side of, of the company, uh, the prefrontal cortex for managing risk, and then finally the inner ear for how you balanced ownership and partnership. Those were kind of the brainy aspects that we saw in companies. And on the bronze side, you know, the, the physical side, which isn't always a sexy, but it's still really, really important. We looked at the spine, which is logistics. How well do you get your products to people? We looked at hands, the craft of making things, which is really manufacturing. Muscles operating at scale on a global basis, which is increasingly important in a world where every product is connected. Hand-eye coordination, how well you drive your ecosystem and shape it for what you hope to get out of it as your business objectives. And then finally, stamina surviving over time. And though, so that was kind of, you know, how it came out. We just wanted to kind of capture a way to give, you know, people, no matter where they are in a company, the ability to look at their organization and say, well, how are we doing on each of these 10 attributes? And you can actually rate your company on a one to 10 scale uh, on all 10 attributes and then give yourself a score and, and overall say, well, where are we doing well and where do we need to improve? Robert, I, I really appreciate the, the, the both <laughs> and nature of your thinking here, 
so often we're we're off we're we're asked to choose, right? Choose between a digital model and a physical model, uh, or uh, you know, or a physical model in this case. What kind as you were doing the research and doing the work for the book, um, what kind of response were you getting from executives who are who are thinking and living in this both and world, knowing you've got to be both as opposed to overprivileging either the digital or the physical? Yeah, it's funny you say that because, you know, in the Valley where, you know, bits and bytes are everything, uh, and I think it's often to our detriment, uh, you know, there was, you know, everyone talks about digitization and it's like as if it's a panacea. And we were coming to the conclusion that it's necessary but not sufficient. Uh, I was with Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target, and, and he, you know, a couple of things he kept saying that, that just really landed well. The first was, you know, exactly like you said, it's about the and, right? You're, you have to do both. Uh, if you're going to serve customers well, you've got to be able to understand these issues of digital and physical because the physical world's not going away. Like we are still a physical species. Um, the other thing that, that he said, which I really liked, was, you know, there's this notion of e-commerce. And he always said, no, 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 there is no such thing as e-commerce. There's just commerce right? There's digital and physical, but it's commerce and they go together. So even if you think of a company like Amazon, we might shop through our phones or shop through our computers, but the process that they use to get the products to us is extremely physical. The logistics, the supply chain is really, really challenging and it has to run well. If they don't do that well, customers won't be happy. Similarly at Target, you know, their ability, if you order groceries online and then drive to the store and you want it delivered to the car, that's a, you know, an operational efficiency and a supply chain efficiency where the front end and the back end are inexorably tied together. And so this is, you know, the, 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 I would say the incumbents who really started to invest in the digital, you know, companies maybe that had a physical DNA, they were the ones that really, you know, kind of, I think did well, especially in the last year and a half through the pandemic. Similarly, the disruptors who really understood the physical world, whether they had to invest in it or partner with it, were really, really the ones who I found are, are kind of a, have a positive opportunity on the other side of this. Uh, Anne Wojcicki, the CEO of 23andMe, used her, you know, the DNA sequencing that she uh, gathered over years of over 12 million people, but partnered with GSK for the development to use that information uh, of drugs and then manufacturing and distribution. So it was really the ability to see the whole system. You know, you talked about the system's leadership. Uh, aspect of this is the ability to really understand kind of the wing-to-wing nature of what it takes to deliver a great product or service to your customers. Robert, thank you for that. And I'll remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and I'm here with Mike Yuseem. We are talking with Robert Siegel, who is the author of the new book, The Brains and Brawn Company, How Leading Organizations Blend the Best of Digital and Physical. Mike, over to you. Well, Rob, first of all, great to have you on the program. And I'm going to begin by focusing for a few minutes on the term you just referenced, systems leadership. And I have a sense that it's not terribly dissimilar from the concept of general management. you got to pull everything together. Leadership indeed depends on marketing and finance and just about everything else. So give us a couple of thoughts on what what you mean by systems leadership. And second part of that, how the heck do you teach that topic? (laughs) 
so on the first part, I think you're right that, that there's a lot of similarity of general management, the ability to kind of have a broader knowledge base of a variety of functions inside of an organization. And I think the, the, the subtlety that I'd like to make a distinction between that and systems leadership is systems leadership is not only understanding those various functions, but perhaps just as importantly, understanding the interactions between them. You know, that in a world where everything is connected, you know, if we visualize a world where bits are flowing back and forth you know, between people, between objects, et cetera, we have to be thinking about, well, what happens when these things interact with each other inside of an organization? If the sales organization, you know, sells something to a customer that requires some particular customization, how does that ripple all the way through to the manufacturing line? What's going to happen? You know, how are the people in the factory going to have to be dealing with this particular thing that's been sold by the sales organization? If you're in the finance organization? Do you understand what's happening inside of your ecosystem? You know, the people who are actually outside of the four walls so that you can understand what do the numbers really mean and why? And so systems leadership is the ability to understand the interactions and also master these different types of strategies. You need to be able to, as a leader, manage, you know, quarterly hitting your numbers. Uh, while at the same time, you need to also understand how to manage small teams who are doing innovation. You need to blend IQ and EQ. You need to be able to understand kind of, you know, what's happening internally and externally. So I think the big thing about systems leadership is not just understanding the different functions, but seeing the flow and seeing the interactions both inside of your company and outside of your company. It sounds exactly spot on. You can't run just about anything if you don't know how all the pieces fit together, which leads me to my second question, which is really about your remarkable career. Uh, Jeff and I and Ann have had people on the program who tend to be in academic life or they're in business life, but you've managed to keep a foot in each of those. And it makes me think that there is value in thinking about the yin and the yang. Uh, yes, and the thesis and the antithesis. And so uh, focusing still on systems leadership, just for one more notch here, what would be an example in your teaching your foot in academe that is informed by your having a, a, your second foot or your left brain, right brain here, to use that metaphor, um, how is your teaching informed by what you have seen as an active participant in private equity, running companies, and, and beyond? I guess the question comes down to this. Uh, how is your teaching informed by the fact that you are doing yes and academic life and business life at the same time. I think they're inexorably intertwined, you know, and I'm very lucky and very grateful. Like I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I've just kind of been lucky to have been in the right places at the right times in my career. One of the advantages of being a venture capitalist is we get to see, you know, so much of what's happening and what's coming forward, new technologies, new business models, new capabilities. So that really kind of gives us the tip of the arrow. At the same time, when you're teaching at a place like Stanford or Tuck, you know, we get these masters of the universe who will come to our classes or allow us to do research on their companies. You also get to understand what it means to operate at scale. And so you really kind of get that juxtaposition of sometimes it's two people and a dog doing something new on a hyper growth trajectory, while at the same time studying well-established, successful, large organizations who are having to keep themselves fresh, you know, not just kind of standard corporate innovation, but kind of what's happening at this moment in time in this blending of digital and physical. And so oftentimes you 
you'll not only be able to see where um, startup companies are going to try to go to attack the large companies, but also how they might be able to collaborate. And so, and also from a larger organization, if they're thinking about this notion of, you know, in the literature, what's called the absorptive capacity of the organization, the ability to kind of learn what's going on outside, bring that information inside and then act and change your behaviors on it. You know, you, you'll see a, a natural curiosity for, for larger organizations that want to know what's coming forward so that they don't get blindsided. I'm just kind of lucky, right? You know, I get being at the ability to uh, be at Stanford, I get to see both of those things. And as a venture capitalist, I get to see both of those things. And then, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm old, right. You know, I'm bald and my beard's gray and I had the, the good fortune of working as an entrepreneur and multi-time CEO and startups, but I also worked in large organizations like GE and Intel. For me, hopefully that brings an empathy to both, you know, uh, types of organizations that like when a, a startup founder is talking about what she or he is, you know, wrestling with, that's probably stuff that I dealt with when I was, you know, uh, leading a small organization. And similarly, when you're fighting the beast of a large company and all the bureaucracy and, and BS and bull hockey that comes with being a large company, I have, mm -hmm. you know, a tremendous understanding of that as well, just because I lived it. And so I think, you know, I'm just kind of lucky I'm at a moment in time where I'm able to kind of see both and try to connect those dots together. <laughs> Rob, a quick uh, follow-up and then back to Jeff uh, on my part here. I hope it goes both ways. So you, your teachings informed by your experience in business, and I'm hoping the answer is yes, that your business experience is informed by your academic role as a teacher. Oh, goodness, yes. I mean, one of the great things about being a teacher is that like, we're also students at all times. And so we get to learn the, the 80 companies that have come to these two courses uh, that I teach are always teachers of us. And yeah. so we have the ability then to kind of, you know, my role as an investor, really, I'm just a coach, right? I'm kind of a teacher there. The, the entrepreneurs, they have to lead their companies. My job is to hopefully be able to kind of take some of the stuff that I'll learn when I'm doing research or teaching at Stanford and be able to kind of bring that to help, you know, the entrepreneurs achieve their goals and objectives. It's great. Jeff, back to you. All right. Thanks, Mike. And I'll remind everybody, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here with Mike Useem, and we are talking with Robert Siegel, author of the just-published book, The Brains and Brawn Company, How Leading Organizations Blend the Best of Digital and Physical. So, Robert, um, in the time we have before the break here, I, I'd like to dig in uh, in a little more depth to some of the framework that that you have presented. Um, and the, the first two chapters of the section really focusing on brains, right, or, or digitization here, um, uses the, the metaphor of left brain and, and right brain thinking. And so left brain thinking being all about data and analytics and right brain thinking about being about how do we harness creativity. When you look at the um, first both the contributions of analytics and, and creativity, as well as kind of hearkening back to your conversation with Mike here, the interplay between analytics and creativity. Um, what feels really important for listeners to understand about those topics? So on the first one, I think with analytics, when we were studying companies, the easy part, I'll call it the table stakes, was okay, you've got to hire data scientists and data engineers, and you got to know how to crunch numbers, and you got to know how to make sure that you're having ongoing relationships with your customers, and you've got all this data, and how do you turn it into, into information? 
And I almost kind of like, yeah, okay, fine, check. What was really interesting was when we looked at companies and how they thought about using the information. And so one of the companies we looked at in detail was Schwab. You know, you think Schwab, we think about a very, very large financial services organization with almost $7 trillion that have been deposited at the organization, but we don't think of them as a data company. What I found really interesting in studying Schwab was how they thought about using the data. The, the, really the question for them always first was, through customers' eyes, what would the customer want us to do with this information? You know, and, and in, in the financial services industry, I, when I was interviewing Walt Bettinger, the CEO, you know, he must have used the word trust 120 times in the 90 minutes we were together because trust, you know, is so important in financial services and it's in such low supply. And so one of the things, stories he told is, you know, if a customer comes to the Schwab website and goes to life events and then clicks on divorce, Schwab at that moment in time, just because a customer has clicked on the menu, might know that a customer is headed to a very, you know, traumatic and important life event and might even know before the spouse knows. And so the question that Schwab asked themselves is, what would our customer want us to do with this information? And I, that notion of putting the human in the loop with analytics was a very, very uh, important kind of notion and, and the, the values by which they were thinking about how to use that information. And I juxtapose that to Facebook. Now we all use Facebook and it's got a, you know, obviously a very successful company and trillion dollar in market cap, but yet there's this kind of sense that Facebook will use our information and the analytics for whatever is good for Facebook versus not necessarily what's good for the customer. And, you know, if, people found a way to kind of get uh, something else out of, you know, other platforms, you know, there's not enough real fierce loyalty to the company that the customers have. We, in fact, we see with the younger generation moving increasingly to TikTok versus Instagram, right? That is a, a, an existential potential risk for Facebook. So when we looked at the left hemisphere, it was not just the importance of making sure you know how to use data, right? Okay, that's almost kind of everyone knows that, but it's the wiseness in how you use the data that, I, that really kind of struck us in the good companies we were studying. On the creative side, on the right hemisphere, uh, we found that the best companies had, you know, both not only creative technological uh, innovations, but also creative business model innovations. And the company we looked at there was Align Technology, the, uh, the company that pioneered the clear plastic aligners for straightening teeth to replace braces, you know, brackets and wires. And what was really interesting is the technology behind Align is just spectacular. You know, they take a digital picture of your mouth and then they come up with a customized plan for every individual, you know, where, how to move individual teeth. They can make a smile look different in Asia versus South America versus Europe versus North America, where norms are different as to what people find attractive. And they, you know, they're the world's largest user of 3D printers. They send out 500,000 of these plastic molds every single day to people all over the world. But what was really interesting about the creativity was not just the technological innovation, but the business model innovation. In the old world, if you will, you had orthodontists who straighten teeth and you have dentists who clean teeth. And what Align figured out is the system that they had built made it so simple that for certain types of teeth straightening, dentists could actually now straighten teeth uh, in ways that they couldn't previously, and it could grow their businesses. So Align worked very hard to innovate their business model and their channel strategy, along with the technological innovation. So creativity comes at a number of different levels. And one of the phrases we use is what we call grinding creativity. It's this idea that it's not just kind of a lightning bolt strikes us out of the sky and all of a sudden you're Steve Jobs and you come up with the iPhone or the iPad. It's this notion of constantly thinking about improvements 
and how to serve customers better. And so that was really one of the neat things that we looked when we studied that company that really stood out to us. And in, in both cases here, Robert, I, I really appreciate the ways in which you're, you're talking about a, a function which exists within most organizations, but then really how that function is contributing to differentiation, contributing to competitive advantage here. Um, you know, for the organizational leaders, for the small business owners that, that are listening right now, what kind of mindset is necessary to be able to have both, you know, the core functions you're discussing, whether it's analytic or, or creative and innovation processes, but also be, be able to see beyond immediate function to, again, going back to an earlier conversation, the interactions that, that, you know, make these kinds of opportunities possible? The theory of systems leadership that we talked about earlier, right, the idea of systems leadership, I think, is kind of almost the, the operating rhythm or the MO by which we, you know, try to encourage leaders to be thinking about these types of dynamics. And great systems leaders, you know, kind of blend the best of both digital and physical. Like, they understand all the benefits of what it means to have, you know, high digital capabilities inside of your organizations. But they also understand, you know, the work of what comes with, you know, if you think of a, an incumbent DNA organization or when I used to run a division of GE, like, I knew my customers really well. I knew their business well. I understood, you know, what their challenges were. And then can you start first with kind of customer outcomes? One of the questions I like to ask leaders is if they can measure the impact of their product or service on the income statement or balance sheet of their customers. Do they really understand how their customers make money and why their customers are buying their product and how they contribute to it? And so I think it, when you really seek to understand that and you really seek to understand what your customers are doing, that doesn't matter if you're a large company or a small company, you'll really then understand like, what do you need to deliver in the products and services to serve your customers well? What type of people do you need to hire? Um, you know, What type of channels do you wanna uh, go and sell to reach your customer base with? Do you want to go direct? Do you want to go through a two-tier distribution model or both? You know, who do you need to partner with because you can't do it all yourself? How are your you know, your competitors likely to react? And so I think it's that notion really of trying to start with, you know, do you know what's going on with your customers? Do you really observe them? Do you understand how they make money, how they operate their business, and what your role is? in their business. Uh, if you're doing a B2C play, do you understand the value that you're really delivering to them? Why do they use your product? That will allow you to constantly serve them better. And Mike, I'm, I'm gonna hand it over to you. Okay, Jeff, thank you very much. And uh, Rob, let's go back to the term, I really love the term systems leadership. And I can imagine more than a few people listening to our program are thinking, sounds like a good thing. I'd like to get some more of that. And how do I become a better systems leader? You know, it's funny because it's it's one of these expressions that in some levels people can kind of make it up what they want it to be for themselves. You might get different yeah. definitions depending upon how they choose to internalize it. The way we use it, as we talked about, is this notion of being able to see how things interact and that that duality of being able to understand like what's necessary in the digital world and the physical world. And what we found is that great systems leaders do two things. The first is they really recognize patterns. They understand, you know, kind of what's happening. They can kind of connect dots that, that are not obvious. Uh, and, and the second thing is they can really drive specific actions, you know, inside of their organization and outside of their organization. And, you know, so, so some examples, 
you know, in, in trying to discover intersections, one of the companies we studied was Samsung Electronics, and they built a very, very successful uh, uh, business. They are the, it's not really well known, they're the world's largest manufacturer of generic biologic drugs. And like, we don't think of Samsung doing that, right? We think of semiconductors, we think of cell phones. And one of the things is somebody inside of the organization or a small group of people realized that the process for manufacturing biologic drugs is actually very similar to the semiconductor manufacturing process. You need clean rooms, you need, you know, certain high disciplined and processes in the way you go through. And they realized that while they were never going to do the innovation on the drug development, they would be very good at the manufacturing side. And they built this now about 10 to $15 billion a year business that's highly profitable profitable manufacturing generic biologic drugs that came out of seeing this connection of the ability to kind of drive it over towards, uh, you know, this other, this other market segment that was, that wasn't obvious. And that kind of, that's, that's, it gets to this level of systems thinking and starting to think, well, how can we take something that we do and maybe apply it to another market segment? You know, Amazon with AWS turns something that was a cost center, you know, driving their engines for, for running their, their commerce to realizing, wait a minute, this system can be applied to other organizations and then we can sell it to other people. We also found that great systems leaders, you know, were able to take actions and, and being able to take actions, they were cut under, they had a knowledge and understanding of the technical stacks that were impacting all functions in their business. You know, things like you know, understanding how artificial intelligence and additive manufacturing uh, and automation is actually impacting various, you know, parts of whether it's manufacturing or even product management and how they, they, they even if people were not engineers as undergraduates or even graduates, they, they they understood that these technologies were going to shape all parts of companies and then could start to see and, and anticipate, well, wait a minute, how's that going to impact my finance department? What jobs are going to be automated again? You know, one of the things about the future of work is, you know, we talk about automation and everything else. If you look at globalization 1.0, globalization 1.0 was a hub and spoke model, right? We said, okay, we're going to put low cost manufacturing here. We're going to put low cost engineering here. It was labor arbitrage, but globalization 2.0, where communication and collaboration tools are only going to continue to get more important and be parts of our lives, organizations are going to operate differently. We're going to see clusters of excellence in different parts of the world that will be able to collaborate better. And so leaders need to be thinking about how these technologies will not only impact their products, but will how to impact their organization. And so it kind of gets into what I like to call a product manager's mindset, right? It's the ability to be thinking about, you know, what do customers need? How are we going to build these things? And kind of, again, that notion of seeing the whole system. And the last thing that I think that great systems leaders do is that they're great storytellers and they know how to manage context. Um, my my co-teacher and, and colleague, Jeff Immelt, um, talks about that truth equals facts plus context. And great systems leaders know how to manage context. And the best example we saw of that was when Ruth Peratt, who's the CFO of Alphabet and Google came to our class. One of the questions I put to the students is I said, okay, how come everybody hates Facebook so much more than they hate Google? Right. And the students are kind of like talking and they're giving me really squishy answers. They were, the students were awful. Like nobody, they would say, oh, you know, Google had it had adult supervision with people like Ruth and 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 Eric Schmidt and I'm like yeah but like Mark and Cheryl are pretty smart so that doesn't kind of explain things why is it you know we just didn't get to a good answer Ruth comes up in front of the class and she starts you know talking about this and she says look our job at Google is to help you find what you want 
right? And if you come to us and we send you somewhere and we built it, great. And if we send you to somewhere else and somebody else built it, but you found what you wanted, you're going to come back to us next time. So our job is to serve the customers. We don't want to keep you in a walled garden where you're always with us and we're measuring your time and your eyeballs with us and you never leave us. That's not what we do. All right, that was managing context. So she stood in front of 80 students at that moment in time, you know, said, here's our mission. And basically, I would say she threw Facebook under the bus without even mentioning their name. She basically trashed their business model, you know, and everyone, yeah, they do want to hold on to us and never let go. I hate Facebook too, because they do that. She didn't even mention them. So there, you know, I love that story because it's kind of funny. Um, It's true, but it's also kind of that, that was a way of managing context. And so I think great systems leaders have all those attributes of knowing how to operate at intersections, knowing how to think like a product manager, but also knowing how to be great storytellers and managing context. So Rob, I I could not agree more. And I think increasingly in my own thinking, uh, offering up a narrative, your own leadership story, really important. It's a learned skill. We'll maybe come back to that, but let me quickly then add one one on a final question for me before we go back to Jeff. And that is surviving, I think you call it stamina, surviving for the long run. That's also part of the storyline here. And by way of example, you reference Alex Gorski at Johnson & Johnson and the Credo. Uh, we've had Alex on this uh, program before, so we're uh, many listeners are fairly familiar, but just tell us a bit more about what stamina means for the long run. You know, what we saw in J&J, you, know, you walk into any Johnson & Johnson building and the Credo's right there on the wall. Yeah. Right? And it was written by, I think, the grandson. Uh, and and, and what, I, what always struck me is they talk about the four constituencies that they serve in order. Patients, you know, doctors and nurses, communities, and shareholders were fourth, right? And so that kind of almost becomes this, like, a, there's no question about how we're supposed to do things. So that's, it. and it's like, it's almost in granted. It's almost kind of like, you know, the, the 10 commandments when you walk into the building, that's right there for everyone to see. Um, and then what I loved about that is that kind of gave people kind of like, we know how we're supposed to behave. Like if you're ever curious or you're ever unsure about what to do, you kind of know how you're supposed to make your prioritized decisions. And then J&J has instituted certain things that I thought were very interesting. The first is, you know, innovation is kind of, it's a habit. It's not something you do when times are bad. And so they, they have put, you know, organizations like JJDC, the Johnson & Johnson Development Corp for, you know, investing in startups and, 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 you know, innovating inside of the organization, that it becomes that they've got four different groups that actually are constantly looking for new products and new services to build. The second thing, and Alex talks about this is, you know, he talks about them being a conglomerate, but they're not really a conglomerate, I would say. They're kind of a healthcare mix and match of, of, of conglomeration. Because, you know, Alex would talk about, you know, businesses have cycles, ups and downs. But if you look at what they sell, it's all within a pretty kind of bounded scope. And let me compare that to, say, GE when, when I was there, where, you know, we had everything from aircraft engines to we owned movie studios, to which had nothing to do with each other. And, and so... What they've got is the ability to, for stamina for surviving over time, is the ability to say, we have the ability to kind of have up, you know, businesses that can manage the ups and downs, but also the constant way of reinventing themselves. And then that notion of this, again, the credo kind of guides how to act and behave. You know, look at J&J, they're going through hard times right now. The opioid crisis, you know, the talc problems that they've got. And the question is, will J&J get to the other side? I'm going to argue, yes. That doesn't mean it's not painful. That doesn't mean that the company did everything perfectly and did everything right. But I think because they've kind of got these things 
things in place. They're going to be able to know that Johnson & Johnson will probably be with us for the next several decades. And I think the systems and the, the, the structures they put in place and the philosophy for running the business that that's in place, it's what's going to allow them to survive. Yeah, great. Thanks. Jeff, back to you. Of course. Uh, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here with Mike UC, and our guest this hour is Robert Siegel, author of The Brains and Brawn Company. So, you know, Robert, as I was listening to this discussion and I, I was thinking about these, the qualities of systems leadership uh, that, that are really enabling this combination of brains and brawn, um, I started to have this internal reaction and, and the reaction was, well, wow, it's, it's a lot for somebody to do. And then I realized, okay, it's not just for, uh, for the leader to do, but it's about how we build teams and how we build culture. And so I'd love to pivot a little bit here and, and just understand your advice for, you know, let, let's start with an executive team. How do you build an executive team to really take on, in a collective way, this responsibility for systems leadership? So my, perhaps my favorite example in this is Katrina Lake. You know, Katrina is now the chairman, but she's the founder of Stitch Fix. And Stitch Fix, for the people, the listeners who may not be familiar with it, is basically a subscription closed buying service where you go online and tell them what you'd like uh, and they will send you some stuff. And you don't know exactly what they're going to send you. And you buy the stuff you like and the stuff you don't like, you put back in an envelope and mail it back to them. And so Katrina at the time was the youngest uh, female leader to take a company public as a founder uh, when she did that several years ago. And Katrina told, told us two stories that, that really kind of... Um, landed very strongly with us. The first was, you know, you talk about building a team. When they're recruiting, the question that Katrina will ask people is, is this person not just a good culture fit, but are they a culture ad? And I love that mindset. You know, you don't want to bring in somebody who doesn't fit because they're going to cause tension and toxicity. But the question is, are you bringing people in who are going to add to the culture, that notion of a culture ad? You know, I thought I think is a really, really powerful notion. The second thing, and this is actually one of the most important things about systems leaders. You know, the other question Katrina asks her leadership team is every year she says, if you were hiring for your job today, would you hire yourself? But and when I ask that question, if I'm working with a company, like especially a large successful company, I ask that question, you know, three quarters of the people in the room will lose all the color in their face, right? Because, you know, and by the way, that's normal, right? You know, the world is constantly changing. And if you think about leaders, right, you know, they've become successful by doing something very well and they've been rewarded for it over time and they move up in the organization and then the world changes. And it's like, oh goodness, holy moly, all of a sudden I've got to do something differently. Would I hire myself? Have I kept myself fresh? And that's hard to do. The analogy I like to use, it's like a crab that molts its shell. You know, crabs, when they molt their shells and any crustacean, when they molt their shells, they actually have to do that to grow, right? And so kind of like we as leaders, we actually have to let go of what we do so that we can reinvent ourselves and do something new so that we can actually grow. And I think that's the kind of the notion as leaders that we need to have is, you know, have that simple question of would you hire yourself gives you the, the opportunity to say, huh, if not, what do I need to do to fix it? 
And I, and that learning mindset that we have to have as leaders, like it's like, you know, we, are we, you know, I'm lucky, you know, three of us are lucky. We get to hang out with young people, like young people actually can always teach us, you know, sometimes they're the teachers and they're the mentors and we're the mentees. And, and I think that's one of the great things that systems leaders do is wanting to have that, you know, Andy Grove used to talk about the fierce desire not to be right, but to get it right. So Mike, I, I want you to know, as I, uh, hand the baton back to you here that I'm not sure if I would hire myself as a radio host again, but I would definitely hire you. Okay. Well, I'll return the favor. Uh, <laughs> Jeff is the guy, but I would definitely hire Jeff. And um, I, I think I, I, I say that obviously a little bit tongue in cheek, given uh, Jeff's own impish look on his face right now. Um, but I think, uh, I guess just to make the point about systems of leadership yet again, it's, it's a leadership system in many ways, including the fact that there's no single leader. And for, from my own experience in this show, we have three, we have a, a producer, Dana's filling in today as a producer as well, and we have three hosts. And honest to goodness, I think we could not produce the show, we could not deliver the show, were we not a team for the show? So, and that leads me to getting close here to the end in our after action review. Systems leadership, I think means uh, you're the guy or you're the woman, but also what's vital is um, the circle around you. So say a few things about what you'd like to have in the circle around you or what you've had or what Jeff Immelt had at GE that served him well. Actually, I'll highlight a few things. The first is one of the expressions I like to use is, is that teams win championships, individuals don't win championships, right? When you're going in business, you're out there, you're trying to win, you're trying to be the best in the market and serve your customers the best, and it takes a team to get it done. And so that, you know, the, this notion of playing for the name on the front of the jersey versus the name on the back of the jersey. And I think that's a mindset. You know, the thing also as leaders, you know, you know we're all biased as humans. We are all biased, right? And that's not bad, right? You know, oftentimes bias in today's business world we talk about in the context of race and gender, but, you know, just as humans, we're biased. Like I was, you know, in my venture business, I was trained as an operator and my business partner was trained as a lawyer. We have biases in how we look at business opportunities and challenges. He, through a legal lens, me through an operator's lens. And one of the things we saw in great leaders is given that we're biased, you know, who can help us break our perspectives and see things we might miss. And in particular, who can do that outside of your company? Uh, Carl Ice, who is the former CEO of BNSF Railways, used to say like, you're never wrong in your own conference room. Like you're just never wrong in your own conference room, especially the more senior you get. Do you have people outside of the company who can tell you how your company is really perceived, how you're perceived, and kind of making sure that you can take that information in? Um, I think that another thing that great systems leaders do is they're very aware of their own uh, strengths and development needs. You know, we talk about leader, know thyself. You know, in my case, my strength and my development need is exactly the same thing. My passion is my greatest strength, right? My energy, if I'm in the classroom, I'm running up and down the aisles and I'm horsing around with the students and I'm trying to push them and get in their faces. And it's also my greatest development need. Like if I can't control my passion, like it can get me into a lot of trouble. Um, it still does sometimes, but when I was younger, one thing that I used to do I got to tell you, gents, I used to send the most amazing flame emails, 
you could ever possibly imagine. Like I would get an email and I would get infuriated by it, right? And I would hit reply all, right? And I hit reply all and I would write a reply that was cutting, it was sarcastic, it was accurate, and it was always ineffective. It was always ineffective. And I had to learn like, yeah, hit save, not send. And I'm much better than I used to be um, I'm still not as good as I need to be, but I think that awareness of knowing like what are our strengths and development needs, um, that will allow you to surround yourself with people who are good complementers for where maybe you, you know, have some holes and we all have holes, right? And we can work to fix those holes. But again, kind of that notion of, you know, when the confetti is falling and you're raising the trophy, it's because you're with a team of people. It's not because you did it yourself. Great point. Jeff. Yeah. Robert, I, um, I really appreciate that, that personal example there. And, and what I'd love to do is maybe expand from the personal back into the organizational. So, so much of brains and brawn is about the next step for the organization, the next opportunity. Um, how does the framework help an organization decide what not to do? So one of the things that, you know, I asked people to start with is, always first, what do these changes mean for your customers? Like just start there outside of the building because all of these trends of digital and physical brains and brawn systems leadership, they not only matter for you, but try to kind of get out of yourself first and work outside in. So what do these things mean for your customers? Then you can kind of say for a second, like what do we do better than anybody else? You know, what's our core competency? What's our unfair competitive advantage? What's the thing that we really need to hold on? Because that's where you want to focus on. And the things that you don't do, that's where you're probably going to want to look to partner. If you're thinking about, you know, again, back to that thing of how you deliver a whole product or a whole service to your customer. You know, the third thing I ask companies to do, what are you not doing today that you need to be doing? Right. Almost always like the company knows like we're, we're supposed to be doing this and we're not. And then I always kind of ask, okay, so you already know this. Why aren't you doing it? Like, Why? All right. Right. And, you know, you get the, well, we don't know how, or we're so busy or whatever. It's like, okay, we'll stop it, <laughs> you know, prioritize and do what you got to do. And then the final thing is, I think perhaps is the most important one is given this, how are you going to change your behaviors? Like if you just kind of go back and do the same things over and over again, we know what's going to happen and it's not going to be a happy ending. And so the, in terms of thinking about what like not to do, I try to focus on customers first. You know, what do you do better than anybody else? What are you not doing that you need to bring in house that you need to do? And then how are you going to change? And I think those four questions will hopefully help people think about prioritization and the actions they need to take to, you know, to kind of grow and scale their businesses. And let me just ask one quick follow up there, Robert. And then um, amazingly, we're going to have to start to wind this conversation down. We'll we'll do a quick after action review here. Uh, but, But in this question of partnership. So, you know, we've really focused, we focused on the organization, leading the organization, bringing the systems leadership perspective um, to the organization. How can the, this perspective help evaluate partners and build partnership? I found the companies that were best doing partnerships, and I may sound a bit of a, like a broken record here, but there's a reason for that, which is that we started with, you know, kind of what is our customer need? So we looked at Instacart. That was one of the companies we studied. And and Instacart, like really this notion of delivering groceries, because it involved like four key parts to what it was required, right? There was the customers who buy the, you know, order the groceries. There's the shoppers who pick it up. There's the grocery stores where they are. And then there's the CPG companies who want to get the data, broadly speaking, as to what's going on. And so Instacart tried to have to figure out what what were the things that they needed to do. And they decided that owning the tech stack was the most important thing and where they would figure out how to partner with other sources 
sorts of organizations. Like that was kind of a key thing to try to figure out what was inside the castle walls, if you will, and what was outside the castle walls. Um, and then you can think about over-partnering and under-partnering. Uh, you know, Daimler, I would argue right now, is in a world of hurt because they underpartnered in particular uh, in areas on, you know, on the brainy side. You know, they wanted to design their own, you know, user experience inside of their cars because they wanted to control the UX and they thought that was critical. And they realized, you know what, customers want to actually do the whole entertainment system through their phones. They want to do Spotify and, and Waze and, and Maps, and they don't want kind of the mediocre systems that, that Mercedes was, 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 was shipping. And so like you, and by the way, as that becomes an increasingly important part of the value of why people buy vehicles, it's not just the amazing engineering and the sportiness of it, it's all the other things that go with it. Customers' needs were changing. And so I would argue that Mercedes is behind delivering a great customer experience. So, you know, in answer to your question, Jeff, I think it's really about start with, you know, what does the customer need and how is that evolving over time? Uh, and then make sure that you've got the best solution for that. And if you could do it in-house, great. If you need to bring it in-house, do so if it's critical, just in the same way that Target did with their you know, original e-commerce stuff. But if you need to partner with somebody and you're not going to win that battle, make sure you partner with the right people and don't try to do it on your own. Robert, thanks so much. And as we uh, move towards the end of our show here, we're going to engage in, in a, a brief after-action review in the time we have remaining here. So, Mike, um, give us you know your your headlines. What are you going to be thinking about? Yeah, uh, I'll, make, I'll make it very brief, and that is um, we need the the A and the Z, and that is we really need to be systems thinkers. We need to be general managers. We need to combine the yin and the yang. We need the left brain. We need right brain. We need thesis and antithesis, and we need brains and brawn. So there it is, Jeff. All right. And Robert, what would what would you uh, want to leave our listeners with? Um, probably in a less than 30 second pronouncement. Three lessons. Number one, the world will combine digital and physical going forward and the best companies will do that. Secondly, incumbents are not doomed and disruptors are not ordained. The companies that blend digital and physical, the best will be the winners. Third, leaders and systems leaders will be the people who will take their generation, excuse me, their companies to success in the next generation. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Robert. And and for me, I think what one of the themes I'm going to keep thinking about more of these, these qualities of system leadership that uh, Robert had detailed, including pattern recognition and driving specific actions in organizations. And then um, also, when in doubt, one of the things that uh, I have definitely heard and will carry with me, when in doubt, think about the impact to the customer. Robert, we want to say thanks so much for joining us here today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jeff and Mike. It's been a real pleasure and an honor. Um, for our listeners, we want to thank you as well for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And please be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. Once again, we want to wish a, or we want to say a special thank you to our guest, Robert Siegel, um, and his new book, The Brains and Brawn Company, I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our good friend, Dana Cash, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm here with Mike Useem and Greenhall. Uh, we'll be back with us next week. And you have been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 